1: is the Josh Marshall podcast. You know, last week we talked about we talked about the uh, Supreme Court nomination hearings, and Kate and I kind of got very deep into different aspects of the hearings and and uh, the politics of them, and so 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 on and so forth. And that was kind of wall to wall what the news was uh, last week. And now we are, uh, you know, you've probably heard this, but it seems pretty clear that whatever continuing controversy and complaints and scandal mongering I mean she, she's gonna get confirmed uh Joe Manchin announcing his support kind of settled that so that's a bit off the radar and now we have two we have two uh resurgent stories that have kind of pushed back uh into uh you know uh, onto the front pages just in the last day or so. The, and one is, and we're going to talk uh, a lot about this during this episode, is more on uh, the January 6th investigation and uh, January 6th. And uh, one thing there, as you've seen, is Ginny Thomas and the fact that she was basically involved in the insurrection. She was there the day of. Uh, But much more importantly, she was heavily involved in all the stuff that led up up to it in the kind of the coup, right, the coup planning. And uh, what do you do with the fact that she is the spouse of a Supreme Court justice who saw it as okay to then actually sit in review of January 6 related cases? And we've had this whole kind of debate over, oh, he should recuse and all this kind of stuff. But the recusal thing itself is kind of absurd because like if someone, if a judge is involved in the murder, you don't say, well, he should recuse himself from the case. He really can't sit as judge. We're like, wait wait, wait a second. (laughs) You're missing the big picture here. He was involved in the murder. Let's let's recusal is the least of it. And that's kind of what we are here uh, with Thomas, for reasons that we've discussed uh, in our in our posts and so on and so forth. And then this morning we had this, I don't know, kind of, I don't know how exactly to rate it on the kind of, you know, the the, the Richter scale of January 6 ism. But we have the fact that the presidential call logs in the president's diary, which is not, you know dear diary, it's me, Donald. You know, the, the, the White House staff keeps a diary of kind of everything the president does. And it turns out that those two things both go blank from a little before noon on January 6th until a little before seven o'clock, which is to say during the insurrection, they both go blank. So what happened? We know he was talking to a lot of people. You know, we have lots of press reports about different specific phone calls and everybody's calling him and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. So what happened? Uh, and this is a report out from uh, uh, Robert Costa and Bob Woodward at The Post, uh, you know, co-done with, um, with CBS News. So that's a big thing. So we're going to talk about that too, much to talk about. Um, but I want to quickly update us uh, before I'm looking at if, if you're, if you're, if you're watching the video version of this we just had we just There's had kate's
0: a lot to say on this subject. do like a
1: walkthrough of <laughs> uh, you know it's one of those things when like and it used to be on like a today show when they would do you know do the do the shoot in, in a, a live shot with that window you know the window wall yeah. out onto out onto sixth avenue or something people would wait it's kind of like that
0: <laughs> it's exactly like that. yeah
1: in any case so uh in the last in the last uh 36 to 48 hours in ukraine the ukrainian military you know we've moved past it's a standoff or a stalemate and the russians are bogged down to the ukrainian military has been been pushing the russian military back especially in the north and the so, and parts of the south of the country the east and the southeast is a different story but incrementally so you know just not you know pushing them back miles and miles a day but but reclaiming territory and then this morning the Russian deputy defense minister um, was speaking to the press and he said, basically, you know, to help along negotiations, we are going to be uh, ramping down and pulling our military out of the area around uh, Kyiv and and another area that's sort of in the north, northeast of the country, Uh, you know, because we just want to help out, want to increase trust. (laughs) And you're sort of like, what? You know, (laughs) what's happening here? And it's not clear what's happening here. Uh, this morning, I saw, and there appears to be, you know, visual evidence now of actual like Russian armor leaving, leaving towards Belarus, which, which for the north is where they, in, in a lot of the cases, came down from Belarus. Uh, you know, kind of the the invasion point. So it's not really clear. Um, is the Russian military in that part of Ukraine closer to collapse than we've thought, or what I have seen? comments from a lot of the sort of the military watchers that those portions of the Russian military, especially around Kyiv, are in danger of being cut off now, right? That you, when an army, if an army gets cut off from its line of retreat, and if you're already kind of losing and you don't control the air, you can get trapped. And suddenly it's not Kyiv that's being besieged. It's the besieging army that's being besieged. So has that happened? I mean, presumably they're not just trying, they didn't get nice, super nice all of a sudden. And they just want to kind of make the make the Ukrainians feel better and and, you know, kind of build confidence. So we don't really know what's going on, but we do know that the Ukrainian military is taking land that as recently as a few days ago was 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 under the control of the Russian military and the precise mix there of counteroffensives and withdrawals and uh you know sometimes armies redeploy to more defensible positions and so so on and so on but stuff is happening and i think we really we really don't know we now know that there are major redeployments that that the Russians seem to be pulling out of some places but again to what end how far? There's still people in in Ukraine in the United States who think this is kind of a sort of a delaying tactic from Vladimir Putin. You know, will say, "Oh, we're 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 trying to, you know, come up with a peace deal and you know, don't no need to sanction us anymore." But in fact, what they're trying to do is trying to gain time to kind of you know focus on the east and 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 impose a partition of the country in the east. In any case, there's a lot happening there, and I and one of the, th- this is one of those. The Ukraine war is one of those stories where you can find out a lot more detail than you're getting uh, through the sort of the big articles in the New York Times and maybe your regional paper or the Washington Post. Although the Post, this is actually a case where the places like the Post and the Journal are actually much better than the Times at getting you down into the nitty gritty. But you can, by uh, following experts on places like Twitter and stuff, you know, people who really Uh, not, you know, people who decided to be experts yesterday, but people are really knowledgeable, they're on Twitter, they're commenting, you can find out a lot. Um, So that is happening. So keep an eye on that. We may talk about it uh, a bit here. But before we get to talking more about January 6, let me remind you that it is hot. It's actually, you know, the funny thing is, it's actually not hot. This is like, this is new spring and summer uh, Grady's ad copy.
0: This is freaking wishful thinking. Yeah, because,
1: because, you know, we're in the, we're, I, you know, I was reading the winter uh, copy, but, but at least where I am, and I think it's probably similar where, where Kate is, it's like 20 degrees, 30 degrees today. So it's actually really cold. But let's, uh, let's, you know, let's me get into character. It's hot, like too hot to put on real clothes and shoes to go out for iced coffee but that doesn't mean you have to suffer without something delicious and cold to sip on. Get a Grady's cold brew bean bag kit delivered to your door and enjoy smooth, silky iced coffee without ever leaving the house. Each kit makes 36 glasses of iced coffee, which means you'll be ready to weather even the worst heat waves. You got to you got to suspend disbelief, Kate. And with the price tag of just a buck a cup, you'll have money left over to splurge on a kiddie pool. Ready to feel the chill with every sip? Get 25% off at Grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. So, okay, Kate Riga, what is um, what is up with all the January 6th stuff?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess the real question is where where to start. We've kind of had a deluge this week of, you know, kind of, big breaking stories related to January 6th, the most recent of which, as you mentioned, is the the case of the missing call logs, the big seven-hour hole in the middle of January 6th. Then we have the story about Jenny Thomas exchanging something like 26 text messages with Mark Meadows, where she's, you know, urging him on in his attempts to overturn the election. But I think almost what's most striking about that is not just that she's married to Clarence Thomas, but is that, you know, and we can get into this, but the text seemed to reflect a kind of earnest belief on, on her part in some nutso things, you know, like full QAnon Guantanamo Bay tribunal type things. And then the third story, we had a TikTok of basically Ted Cruz's involvement with the attempts to overturn the election, which, and, you know, we were discussing this right before we came on air, why that one feels like it didn't resonate quite as widely as the other two did. And, you know, we were discussing that on the one hand, you know, it being Ted Cruz almost has some built-in dismissiveness because I think people are very well aware that he is this kind of uber ambitious, uber cynical, willing to take advantage of, you know, kind of the true believers in the party for his own political gain at this point. But it, it is stark, his role in it and his role that comes with the trappings of being a senator and being a lawyer and having a fancy pedigree. Like that is kind of the reason why Trump hung a lot of this on him as, as you know, as him being a very important player.
1: Right, right.
0: So I don't know. Where do we start? Where do you want to start?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. The Ted Cruz thing is is a, (laughs) I was going to say fascinating one, but I don't want to give him that much credit. I mean, Ted Cruz is an oily lizard who just inhabits a place of permanent awkwardness, right? There's people you're around when you're, when they talk- I can't even, you know, certain people. Anything they say, you just feel like, oh, you're so fake. Like you're so fake. I can't even be around you. You're so fake, and you're you're so fake, and and you know you're fake, and I know you're fake, and it's so awkward being around you. And he's that guy, and he's an oily lizard, and a, just a a this person. And because of that, I do think that's part of it. That people are like ah oh, Ted Cruz, you know, just just. And, but but I'm not even sure why, I mean it's not like do we think Ginny Thomas is like a a more, a more serious <laughs> person you know kind of I, I, I doesn't um I'm not sure exactly why it it didn't get more attention I mean as you said I mean we know he kind of you know it's the same way that he tried to position with this you know uh, uh kitty porn stuff with the judicial you know he's always on he always wants to be there on top of whatever the grossest most hypocritical most nonsense you know all -hmm. that stuff and he was doing that with jan six we even know that um you know there's that famous scene where those insurrectionists kind of find his desk and they're looking through his papers and and he's clearly got like on his senate desk clearly like you know january 6 master insurrection plan <laughs> authored by Ted Cruz and at first they think he's like wait he's selling us all. you know we know he's been in the midst of it but a lot more than i mean i kind of had this idea okay the trump people are doing all this kind of weird stuff and the republican party the congressional party kind of gets behind or a lot of them get behind we'll make an objection to the count and you make an objection and it gets voted down and everybody's happy, sort of. Right. Um, That it's voted down and then that's it. And and they kind of knew that it wouldn't go through. And I kind of thought that he was on board with that, you know, and a lot of people were on board with that. I mean, that's pretty bad, but that's one thing. But now it turns out he's deep into the whole thing. And that's that's pretty weird.
0: Yeah, I think it's Also, there's kind of a notion that like the lawmakers that would be on board with Trump for this are known quantities at this point. Right. We know that Josh Hawley is going to be on board. But I think the thing that is startling when you read the piece is that Cruz was kind of specially like anointed for this role or sought out anyway in a way that Hawley was not. In a way that the counterparts in the House were not. And I think that's what's striking to me that Trump kind of identified him as someone who's got some legal gravitas, who knows, at least has a sense of how the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act work and would have a fairly good idea on how to subvert those things. And he was chosen and accepted that role and was really thwarted by the same forces that thwarted the whole effort, you know, which was the number, the sheer number of states that you would have had to convert, uh, the many legal barriers that proved, you know, so great that even Trump-leaning judges wanted no part of it. You know, all of those things affected him as well. But that is what stuck out to me. It's not that he's a cynical, ambitious player willing to do anything to further his own career. We've known that for years. We've known that since one of my favorite quotes about anyone in Congress where Al Franken says, I like Ted Cruz more than my colleagues and I fucking hate Ted Cruz. You know, it's known, it's known, but it's interesting how much he was sought out from the mix of other lawmakers like him.
1: Well, it's, it's definitely true that uh, pre, I mean, I went to college with Ted Cruz. My wife did. My wife went to law school with Ted Cruz. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I know a lot of his friends, the pre, he has definitely been, before getting into elective politics, the highest level of federalist society to, you know, college debate, all that kind of, you know, right wing, brainiac, annoying people world. Um, so to the extent you're going to bring someone in who's not like Jim Jordan, who's just a total fucking meathead and an idiot. Ted Cruz is not an idiot. And as much as everyone at every point in his life has disliked him. He's a smart guy. And so, yes, Trump clearly sought him out for that, that he's, you know, he's, he's the person who, if he's on board, it'll be, it'll be serious. And, and what, what strikes me about this is that one thing that came out of the Ginny Thomas thread of this is that um, John Eastman, who is... Who, Basically, played the role of this, of this of this central ideologue for the coup. You know, coming up with the ideas. You know, coming up with the legal theory. He's a former clerk for Justice Thomas, and there's an and you know there's another former clerk who's one of the investigators in the Jan. Six committee. Uh, Ted Cruz is not a a Thomas clerk but he's oh god i'm lo- but he's tight with Eastman. None of this is surprising. This is the sort of the the highest point of elite republican legal circles. It makes sense that they're all pals. But what you see, what you've seen over the last week is, you know, we know all these people are pals. But you add together the fact that Eastman is part of it and he's part of that like tight community of people, he's part of it. Ginny Thomas who's not only the spouse of a, of a justice on the Supreme Court, but a very openly political spouse and one whose political activism, she and her husband have always been very public that they are a team as political activists. There's a long, long history of this and everybody has always thought it's a little, it's iffy. Because, you know, yeah, you're a spouse, you, you get your own life, but come on, you're a Supreme Court, you know, it's the of a Supreme Court justice. You shouldn't be that heavily engaged in in, in in partisan politics. So she's part of the part of the coup, and Eastman is, and so Connie, you start seeing like, all right, maybe it's not like the sort of the you know respectable conservative legal types and the kind of the bonehead Jim Jordan meatheads that this has been run by the the serious legal types even more than the Jim Jordan types. And Ted Cruz, too. And, and so I think all of these things kind of reaching like a critical mass. And, and, and um, you know, the other part of this is that there was an article in The Post, I think it was The Post, uh, maybe everyone had a, a version of the same article, basically saying that there's real divisions on the Jan 6 committee about what to do about Jenny Thomas. Because everyone else in that kind of situation is at least getting asked to testify, maybe not subpoenaed, but at least asked. And what if what if it leads to something about Clarence Thomas? And at least how this article presented it was Liz Cheney really doesn't want to go there, doesn't want to besmirch Justice Thomas. And to be sympathetic to her point of view, he's from, I'm sure in her mind, the old Bush, Cheney, good guy, conservative world. And he's like a, you know, an icon in that world. And she doesn't wanna doesn't want to go there. But what this whole thing kind of shows us is, and look, some people probably say, well, now, you know, now it's heating up and she's, you know, she's going soft because it's her friends now. I don't think we can quite say that. I think she has sacrificed too much personally and professionally for us not to think that she really is deeply invested in this. But I, I think that in her position, she's trying to find that line. Bad Trump people, good Bush-Cheney people. And to be clear, when we say Bush-Cheney, we're not just talking about uh, the second President Bush from you know 2000 to 2008. Dick Cheney was a major figure in the first Bush administration as defense secretary. So these are you know all kind of together. And I think what we're seeing here is you can't. <laughs> the old guard is thoroughly mixed up in this stuff and and the Thomas Ginny Thomas stuff even starts to give you the sense of it's not that the old guard got corrupted here it's that a lot of this stuff started with the old guard and maybe Trump is just a a convenient you know vehicle for it so to me that's how all these things like that's the critical mass how all these things are kind of coming together
0: yeah i mean on the kind of should Clarence Thomas recuse front, I've seen a lot of discussion about it in general, a lot of particular discussion saying, you know, Democrats are wimps for not coming out and calling for this immediately or calling for his impeachment or anything in that vein. And I I mean, I get it. Obviously, it's egregious, but it's almost like with this court at this point, it's of a piece with all the other stuff. I mean... Has Clarence Thomas been influenced by his wife's fanatic views? Of course he has. Of course. Have Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett been influenced by their coming up through the Federalist Society? Of course. I mean, it's kind of it's and I think this ties in with what you're saying that they're Is no old guard and new guard in the Republican Party. And I think such a bifurcation just serves to soothe the mind of Democrats and other non Trump people who are still holding on to this hope that the fever will break and the Republican Party will kind of return to normalcy. But these seeds have been there for a really long time. And there's not, you know, the stripping away of the genteel covering that it had for a while does not mean that it's mutated into something completely unfamiliar from its old form, or that people who comprise the party pre-Trump are totally different creatures than the ones who comprise it post-Trump. And so, I don't know. I just, to me, the kind of should Clarence Thomas recuse thing, besides the fact that obviously he's not going to, and the calls for him to step down is like, I think Clarence Thomas would rather, I don't know, legalize abortion forever more than step down during a Democratic presidency. Well,
1: it's (laughs) one of these things, if for whatever reason he lost his senses and decided to resign, the Republicans would not let him. I don't know what they would do, but they would not let him resign. It would just but but having said that, the recusal thing is is quaint. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know I mean, look, we all know about marriages and relationships, you don't have one spouse being full QAnon, and the other's like, oh, didn't know that. I'm, I'm shocked. I mean, come on, come the fuck on. It's not even, and it's not even, you know, some relationships, one person is very political, and the other person is, you know, my, I'm obviously very drenched in politics. My wife, she's interested in politics as kind of as much as the average person. And obviously being married to me exposes her to a lot of it, but it's not her thing. In general, it's not her thing. She's not another hardcore political person. But we know these two are both hardcore political people. They're both in the same political movement. They have presented themselves for decades as sort of a political team. So The reality is we know that her views are pretty much a proxy for his views. And if she's this whacked, then he is too. And everything we know, I think, makes it presumptively the case that even if he was not taking affirmative actions to advance the coup, he was looped in on it. And the fact that a Supreme Court justice was looped in on it and did nothing, he should resign he should not be on the Supreme Court anymore. And I do think as much as it is absolutely true what Cage said, that, I mean, there's no way he's going to resign, and there's also no way he's going to recuse himself. But the Democratic Party, everyone who believes in the future of this country should at least make really clear he should resign, because that is a deal breaker. You can't be plotting against the Constitution and be the guardian of the Constitution. You can't you cannot do both and he and at the moment for now he is doing both and that's absurd and he should resign and so even though you know it's 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 funny one thing um that democrats find themselves in this position sometimes is kind of like well well and i i don't think this is what kate was saying but but some people do say this you know well it's not going to happen so why why, why are you going to get whipped up about something that's not going to happen well that's that's you shouldn't think that way you need to make clear what should happen and then you leave you know, it's a different question, what will happen or not. But, you know, recuse it. It's like I said at the beginning, I think at the beginning of the podcast, it's like if you found out that the judge was involved in the murder, you wouldn't say he, he, he should recuse himself from the murder case. He needed a different judge who doesn't have a conflict of interest. Well, yeah, but judges who are involved in murders should not be judges. And this is in a civic sense, in a constitutional sense, this is the same thing. It really is.
0: I think that's exactly right. And I think that is where Democrats have been dithering over this question of recusal, which is rooted in this ridiculously debunked notion that, you know, Supreme Court justices are just calling balls and strikes, folks, impartial umpires, you know, he, his spouse is allowed to have an independent opinion. It's like, what are you talking about, man? That's not the crux of the issue here. You know, take it to his logical conclusion and stop dithering around the edges. It's obvious what where he stands on this stuff. I mean, he it's not like he's made bones about it in his writings, you know? It, he's always been way, way out there on the right. That's, that's true in general.
1: And, he, and he's also been... And this is something that that at least perceptions of this changed over the course of his time on the court. But Antonin Scalia was always very conservative, very ideological. Over the course of his tenure on the court, I think the reality and certainly the perceptions was that he got more political, m- more you know, more kind of more political. And uh, in the last uh, seven or eight years, decade or whatever, Alito. Thomas, now Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, they're very political. You got, you know, you have Alito out there kind of giving speeches that are, that are like, you're like at the Republican convention or something, you know, and, and Thomas is, 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 you know, there's, they are highly, 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 uh, political, not just, not just extremely right wing, which they also are.
0: Right. But I, and then when it comes to the democratic response, just guys you know, get on the same page and decide what you're going to say. And I'll say it. Since that story broke, I saw a smattering of different responses that run the gamut from he should recuse to he should resign, but pretty much only coming from, you know, more liberal lawmakers, as you would expect. And the thing that gets me about it is I Totally agree with you, and we basically had the same conversation when we were talking about impeachment round two, which was so many people were saying nothing's going to come of this. You know, they don't have the votes in the Senate. What's the point? And sometimes the point is you got to do stuff for posterity. You have to mark out a position that this isn't okay. That even if we don't have the power to, you know, in that in that situation, remove President Trump, and in, in this situation, to get Thomas off the bench. There's still power in people surrounded by the trappings of Congress saying something as a unified front. And I think that applies here, too.
1: And I I think I think that's 100 percent correct. And I think that it is not it is not just for history, though. You know, most most of the public doesn't read up on and adjudicate or litigate the big, the big and the small political questions of the day. They rely heavily on, um, you know, validators, for lack of a better word, to kind of guide them what to think. And that, and that doesn't mean like, oh, you're just, um, you know, sheep, sheeple, you know, just going along with what the Democratic Party says, or this or that or the other. In all aspects of life, we, we, we zero in on people whose judgment we trust, and on the issues that we are not going deep, deep on, we look to them for guidance. We do this in all aspects of life. And the public is reliant on the signaling of if everyone in one party is saying, that person should resign. That person has, has, has you know, violated their trust and they should go. Yeah, You don't necessarily agree with that, but you're like, okay, they, that's saying something that person has, you know, a whole big group in our society has decided that that person violated their trust. Um, And also, you know, all sorts of things flow from that. But if you don't say that, then, you know, then it's kind of like, okay, you know, I heard some, he did something, but whatever, it's not clearly not that big a deal, because no one's making a big deal out of it. So there is that signaling aspect of things that is really very important. and, And because that 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 charts the contours of one's sort of ideological and political uni- universe. And especially if, if one side is constantly saying this person's a child molester and this person um, is, is working with uh, George Soros uh, and the Jews to take over the banks and, you know, all, all these kind of, you know, Benghazi and stuff like this. It's not that the other side should do the same things, but you you should say what you actually think. And if someone does not think that Clarence Thomas's apparent involvement in this really disqualifies him from being on the Supreme Court, I have to question that person's judgment. We got to remember, this is not like, as was famously said, legitimate political discourse.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Plotting against the Constitution, trying to overthrow the government, is not legitimate. and And- <laughs> for a Supreme, you know, for an unelected Supreme Court justice to be doing it now, should he be interviewed? Should there be some? Yes, he should. But I'm saying presumptively based on what we know now, it looks really bad. And you just have to say, say these things, even if he will not be forced to resign, because you need to chart out the outlines of acceptable behavior. And if you don't, again, people won't know, because we all have influencers in different, you know people you trust on things.
0: And not least because, I mean, like you mentioned, we're coming off a week where Ketanji Brown Jackson, at this point, the presumptive next justice of the Supreme Court, has been verbally tarred and feathered every day with accusations that were debunked by every major news outlet. And that didn't matter. They kept on it. Their their message discipline was admirable. They went on Fox News. They amplified it. They stuck to it. That is going to mean that there's going to be some air of wrongdoing clinging to her in the eyes of some people, some, you know, low information people. And just the fact that on the heels of that, you get not a kind of baseless, cherry picked accusation, you get a full fledged indication of some major anti-patriotic corruption and the response from Democrats is scattered at best after they just spent the week watching their new exciting nominee get defamed on public TV every day. It's just, you know, it's mind-boggling. And and it's not to say that I don't have sympathy for the asymmetry at work here. I do. We've gone over it a lot of times. You know, the right has access to a media ecosystem that makes it much easier for them to have that message discipline, to keep harping on these kind of debunked accusations until there's, an, there's enough smoke that people assume there's fire, you know, and the Demo- Democrats don't have that same thing and they am sympathetic to that. But sometimes they act like they've got no megaphone at all and that's not the case either. And if they did things in a unified way as one so the story doesn't, you know, become whatever Mansion and Cinema are doing now, that's, that's got power, And it's frustrating to kind of watch Republicans get away with it over and over and over. And then the Democratic response amounts to, you know, Dick Durbin saying, I just I don't want to give kudos to Chuck Grassley for behaving so well during these hearings. And then Chuck Grassley gets the mic and is like, you know, we haven't gotten much information from the White House on this child pornography stuff. I mean, it's what are we doing here?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's this is. uh yeah, this is the latest edition of of in many ways a, a common story, and there's there's um, you know there, there's various ways in which we've dis- there are we've discussed this many dimensions of this in the show in on, on our show uh, on the site over over many many years. I feel like this is is this a good segue into the question? Should we go to the question?
0: Okay, so our question is from Chris, and this is regarding. Uh, A reader email that Josh put in the ad blog, uh, which I will, I'll read the question and then Josh, you can give like a little bit of a summary of that question and the feedback you got. So the question is reading the punch them in the nose post and follow up. My question is why doesn't this type of response happen? Is it a high level decision not to do this kind of thing or something missing in the liberal infrastructure that makes it much harder for our side to get out effective messages?
1: Yeah. So, so um, the reader email uh, in 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 this case was someone basically saying you, you can map it on to this discussion we're having about Clarence Thomas about you know recusing or that you have to fight and signal what is acceptable and not acceptable and and where you are and where you are not by basically by aggressive political attacks um and Republicans do this, and Democrats generally do not do this and the the original email was actually, I I, th- I think was 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 responding to something that I said in the last episode of the podcast, which is basically the characterological differences between the people who make up the two parties. And I thought um I thought that that the reader had I, I don't. I don't feel like I said what I took him to be responding to. I. I wasn't. I wasn't justifying these things. It's more kind of. There's a reason why it is not happenstance that this happens. As to uh, is there. You know. Is is there a. Um, you know. Are there meetings where they decide? Hey, let's 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 go soft on this. Let's not let's not rock the boat or anything. Maybe to some extent, but I think again, I I think it is generally that. And again, I'm, I guess I'm kind of repeating what, what, uh, what the reader was responding to, that um, the Democratic Party is a much more coalitional party that wobbles apart pretty quickly, much more quickly than the Republican Party, because it's much more hom- homogenous. I think that's one part of it. The other part of it is that Democrats and Republicans are kind of different characterologically. The Republican Party's more authoritarian, more leadership-based, more aggressive and predatory democrats are kind of different and that makes them that's a problem if you're in a in a kind of a kinetic aggressive political culture um so <laughs> i don't say i mean look if 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 anyone who has who has read what i've written in the editor's block for any period of time knows that i am very in support of, of very aggressive politics very pugilistic politics. Um, So I think it should be more like that. But I also understand why it tends not to be. Um, I don't know. what What are your thoughts on this, Kate?
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think the big problem right now that we're having versus the Trump years is that Democrats haven't fully figured out how to respond to things that are bad faith or that are untrue or that have purposefully you know pejorative connotations or implications and it's hard because the kind of let's just rise above it attitude just it lets the stuff live and it it almost makes it look like maybe it's got some grain of credibility in it and that's why they're trying to avoid it and hope it goes away instead of addressing it head-on and the problem is as we kind of talked about earlier And we've talked about this, especially in regard to voting rights, is that then it doesn't awaken the constituency because they're not seeing the people they take their signals from, their political leaders, raising the alarm on something. And again, there are media difficulties with this. There are political difficulties with this, including that you don't want to raise the alarm about a lot of bad stuff while you're guys in the White House, but I think it it makes it difficult because it interrupts this the feedback loop between the kind of, you know, elites at the top of the party and the constituents at the bottom. And that's a feedback loop that for Republicans is sealed, It's constantly going. They take the elite, take their cues from, you know, message boards at the bottom and vice versa. And people get the message and Democrats have not figured out how to do that as well. And so I think with the Clarence Thomas stuff, with debunking the Ketanji Brown Jackson stuff, you just see the cracks in that and the difficulties Democrats have in responding to this stuff when it seems just by looking that a lot of them are just kind of taking this posture of hoping that Republicans kind of go back to the way that they were, which it seems to be ignoring a lot of the reward system in place that incentivize the way Republicans are acting right now.
1: Yeah. Uh you know, it's funny because it's even today, the city and I I tend to think I think many of us tend to think more of the Senate because the Senate is there you you can get your head around it. There's a finite number of people. If you're really into politics, you can basically know the name and a little about every single member of the Senate. The House is almost is upwards of 500 people. You can't, you know, it's, it's just too many people. Okay. Um, in the Senate, the Senate is very different than it was a decade ago, 15 years ago, when you had, you know, half the Democratic caucus was like Chris Coons. And I, I use Chris Coons as an example, because Chris Coons is, I think, a, a really decent guy. I think his actual politics are you know, fairly progressive, you know, progressive enough. He's not, he's not like, you know, kind of one of these like Max Baucus or, 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 uh, you know, kind of Joe Lieberman types, but you know, you know, kind of everything has to be bipartisan. The most important thing we can do here is find little inconsequential things we can agree with, with our Republican colleagues. That used to be like the entire democratic caucus basically. And it's not now. Um, And that is different. And you've got people like Brian shots and stuff. And, and, you know, you've got a lot of people who are, who would be, w- would, would feel very, you know, who could fit right into this conversation we're having right now, but it's not all of them. And even those people, it's sort of, you know, there's still, you want to get along with the good Republicans kind of, which I get, I, I, I might do the same thing if I were up there, but it, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. And, and uh, yeah, I, I
0: (laughs) yeah. And I I can't let this opportunity pass without putting the blame that is richly deserved on Manchin and cinema, which I think applies here because, you know, this is not Democrats' strength, you know, getting down in the mud and fighting. That's what Republicans like to do. That's not what Democrats like to do. What Democrats like to do is legislate. They have a big, ambitious Agenda, An agenda that has moved leftwards and taken on uh, more progressive ideas have become enmeshed into that system than were before. And what they want to do is they want to talk about that stuff and they want to pass it and they want to run on it. Yeah. And that route has been completely cut off by Manchin and Sinema, you know, together, basically making Build Back better impossible, making, keeping the filibuster in place. So making everything else impossible, which leaves Democrats with just the messaging stuff and the optics stuff and the posturing stuff that a lot of them think in a way that I agree with, even if it's an ill time to meet this moment, they think is the worst, most craven part of politics, you know, the underbelly to the public servant side of politics. And so that also is just another reason why I think they're in this spot.
1: No, I I think that is 100% right. And I think what is... I, I think what is really important to focus on is the fact that there's probably a number of senators now thinking like, okay, enough with Build build Back Better. You know, it didn't happen. Let's move on. Let's talk about deficit reduction, you know, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But a year ago, there were 48 senators who were good to go on a big version of Build Back Better. It would have happened. There were 48 senators who were down for it. There were 48 senators who were down for some revision of the filibuster rules, and they blocked it. So if they would have acted differently, it would now be law. And I don't know if the short-term politics would be different, but the big picture would be very different. So it really was all them yeah and that is very important to bring it back to and and even though you know it's one of these things where with the short term politics have been very different, I don't know, but from another perspective, yeah maybe you lose a you know maybe you have a really bad midterm election, but the stuff is still on the books, and if you think back like, oh wow, why did we work so hard to elect Joe Biden and elect a democratic congress? well well, that's build back better and a lot of people be like, okay. That's, a, that's, that's OK, I got it. That's what, that's what I put the work in for. That's a big deal. It's pretty tough if you I don't think we didn't get anything, but Democrats did not get nearly as much as they thought they were going to get, and they, they, not that they deserved, but they thought, and they had good reason to think they were going to get a big part of it in the spring of 2021. And that didn't happen. And that is all Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Any idea you still have that, well, they were just running interference for seven or eight senators who also wanted to... No, not true. 48 senators were totally on board. And Kate knows more about this second point than I do, but 48 senators were ready to make some changes to the filibuster. Mm -hmm. Not get rid of it, not maybe quite as much as you want, but were not inflexible. We're, we're, we're ready to make some changes. And it is all down to those two. And it's yeah. worth, you know, we shouldn't and, forget. And to. Totally.
0: And I think it's worth mentioning because the figures like the, you know, like the Chris Coons model, the ones that drive some Democrats freaking crazy with their obsession with bipartisanship, I, that's a fair criticism. And it also has to be mentioned in the same breath that those people who are creatures of the Senate, who love the way the Senate functions, and who love kind of norms and orders two of one were willing to reform the filibuster. And almost all of those candidates that you would think would be most nervous about it, almost all of them cited voting rights as the thing that alarmed them enough that they were willing to make changes to the body. And that is hugely important because that is like the beating heart of kind of what the Democratic Party is at this point, especially as the Republican Party keeps backsliding into authoritarianism. And I know that we don't talk about Bill Back better anymore and that it's not on the headlines because it's not being negotiated, but that's a critical, critical data point in getting us to where we are now. And that is fully, completely mansion and cinema, giving Republicans this massive win and the ability to decide the narrative and decide the fights that that Democrats are having. That's, you know, that's all on them.
1: Right. All right. I think that's probably a a good down note to <laughs> to conclude on. Uh, remember that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady's Coldbrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady's Coldbrew.com with promo code TPM. Let me also remind you, we are still in the midst of our annual uh, membership drive at TPM, the, uh, the outfit that, that creates this podcast. So if you are not a member, uh, not a, if you haven't subscribed to TPM prime, please give it a, give it a shot. Um, that is what our operation is based on. So it really helps us out. Uh, you get access to a lot of great additional content that is, uh, for members only. So, uh, again, subscribe to TPM prime.
0: All right. And that is,
1: that's it. All right. Later.